Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome to Punching Out, a show about work. You are here with Emily, Chris, Ariel, and today we're going to talk about working in media. Um, Chris is our local expert as a former employee of a local news station. And actually all of the stations. I worked, not to brag, <laughs> it's also kind of a bad thing, but I've, I have been at every uh, local station. The reason that is is because, and what I'm going to get into is that it's a very uh, unstable field. Um, I kind of knew that getting into it when I was, you know, learning about it in college and, and doing all the things necessary. It requires a lot of outside work when you're in college to get into. Um, but it's something that you're kind of, hopefully someone's prepared for when they get into it. And the reason why it's unstable is because the scheduling is unstable. Um, part of that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, news isn't something that happens uh when you want it to it's going to happen on holiday sometimes it's going to happen on the weekend sometimes but also the thing I th- that is most crucial is the low pay uh something that most industries are not immune to or it's almost becoming built into the way it functions and this isn't just uh like tech guys or people who are just starting out i mean there are people who are reporters who are on-air talent who are expected to be professional be clean you know have all the the whole reporter look that you kind of expect and they're just not really uh, compensated that well. And after a two-year contract, three-year contract at most, they just skip out and go to another city. I mean, any town you go to, I mean, half the people you see on air um, are not going to be from there. They're not going to have the institutional memory. And it just creates this whirlwind of problems and of shortcomings that I think are right there in, in local media. So what, what specific did you, specifically did you do? So uh, fortunately, I was not one of those on-air people. Um, because that requires, you know, going to a small town first, and I wasn't prepared to do that. Um, but what I did do was I was a, a news photographer um, or a, a video journalist, multimedia journalist, whatever people have called it. And it's the phrasing changes because I think the best way the average person pictures is like, oh, you're the cameraman. And for a long time that was the case. Like it was the guy who just went out and just shot the story. And with the reporter usually, and you work closely with the reporter and you build a lot of – great relationships doing that and you get to ask questions yourself um but what you also have to do now is it ended up kind of downsizing into doing five or six different jobs at once when you uh, started were there was there actually a diversity of people doing these tasks or was it already collapsed into your job description when you when you got there when i started was when like it was that process was just happening. Yeah. A lot of stations, like for example, like live trucks, like when you see a big live truck at some big news event um, where they, you know, with the satellites on top, um, but locally every station besides one um, got rid of all their live truck engineers. So now it's up to the person in my job to run that live truck, no matter, you know, whatever the conditions are in the middle of the street, if you have to, while editing the story, making sure everything's put together, while shooting the story, making sure you know it's a lot and all on a very tight deadline. So what you're saying is you do the job of more than one person at this channel. Yeah, right? or what used to be more than one person. And the thing is, the technology be- sounds beca- familiar. Yeah, <laughs> like and the, and the reason that's dangerous in this field because when there's instability hitting um, a job or a role in society that is so crucial to people's understanding of their surroundings. Um, it has a big effect. Well, it's dangerous in any field, right? I mean, I work in a medical lab, and yeah. I do the job of more than one person every single day. Right. And we all kind of do. Mm-hmm. And that's important stuff. It's, you know, people's test results for HIV could get messed up because people are overworked. Yeah, and, um, y- and you miss deadlines. The work isn't as good. Um, the, the stories you're able to do, the stories you're able to cover, because everything has to happen so fast, you can't really, unless you're someone who has a lot of, um, like a, you're a big name locally, you're, you're kind of like the dominant person at your station. Uh, every station locally seems to have one or two reporters like that. Um, you don't really get the chance um, to work on a slow burn type of story. Mm. Um, the newspaper still does some of that, but because of their own cuts, um, they're not able to have that as much as they used to. So 
with when that happens, it creates this environment where everyone is under this level of pressure that they're not really uh, prepared for. You have a lot of people who are very young, who are just getting into the field, who kind of have to like pile on task after task after task, and the end result is something that is just passable. Right. And I noticed that most when I would have to, for example, like I'm running a live truck and we're at a story, and let's say I have 20, 30 minutes to get this thing done, but and there's people calling you like, oh, is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? And I'm like, no, no, it's not. And like I have to still shoot it and everything, and then it misses the deadline because of some technical error. And it's like mm-hmm. all these little things would be much easier if the the business itself was not so dedicated to saving every last penny. Right. And that to me was the most glaring issue overall. I mean, I can. Like, so let's let's talk a bit for a second about how like how those pressures actually played into the lived experience of working a nine or ten hour day. Like so, like when you get there, like how do you how do you get started? What does your what does your day feel like? Um, I mean, it's stuff I think anyone would expect. This is you just get your stuff ready, your camera, you know, which is normal. It's fine. Um, this, does this the thing, editor hand out like stories for you to deal with like right at the beginning, or are you just sort of on a call? Well, there's a meeting. Yeah. And the meetings are aware, to me, was the most interesting part. Sometimes I wouldn't always be in them. I would just be editing or whatever. Um, but you go in, and this is, where, this is where the narrative plays out. And this was always the most fascinating thing to me, the thing that was most glaring to me, even when I was just an intern. Um, I, I love to take part in these things. So I was like, wow, like, this, is, this is where the decisions are made, like right here. Mm. And I would sometimes slowly but surely, you know, I would kind of just kind of start to chime in a little bit and I would notice that that's good that's what you're supposed to do right and they probably told you that when you got hired yeah that hey you know if you ever have have any ideas come to us with your story ideas no maybe I'd get personally complimented um by my news director sometimes even if it was something that kind of flew in the face of what everyone else was saying um and it was it was a bit of a mixed message because then they would never really uh deliver on those recommendations huh. wow so like do you, I, think, do you think they were placating you or just that like they, they ran up against their own institutional obstacles i don't know because like why would they placate me you know like who am i to do like it's not like i was ever throwing a fit or anything you know or they weren't trying to like calm me down i was never getting uh, like amped up in a meeting but i think that they knew they saw a pattern of kind of trying to divert from the normal things they're doing. There's always a attention to what other stations are doing too, yeah. especially who the number one station is and what they're doing. Yeah. And so do you have like some examples of maybe ideas that you pitched? Like were they things that were challenging the structures of power and maybe mm-hmm. that th- they couldn't put that on air, of course. It's like... How dare, how dare because you? Because they, they could, right? <laughs> because there's nothing really stopping them from doing that. There was no like mission statement put out, but I think... The most recent big example was I got these these foiled documents. Um, this guy I know he had he was after months and months of trying. He got these documents that listed every single complaint from RPD uh, or to R- that RPD's behavior from civilians uh, to the city. So this is 15 years of complaint. Most of them are stuff that's very small. It's like hey they blocked my car in. A lot of it is stuff from like very physical encounters, stuff where people got beat down. Um, there's also the more public incidents were occurred, you know, when like Benny Ware or yeah. things like that, where people were just beat down in broad daylight with no repercussions for the officers. And I was like, guys, like, and this was at the same time and I had, and I received this report from him uh, at the same time where the story was, um, the FBI was investigating the RPD for giving a guy a chokehold mm-hmm. during these fight on East Ave. Mm-hmm. And the, and this that news just broke that day. It was the DNC was covering it. All the conditions are there to make like a yes. good news story. I'm that's like, like socially relevant and also sexy oh yeah. enough that the it, it would get viewership. Yeah, and I'm like, look, not only is this are the the RPD just settle that case for half a million dollars and their FBI is investigating him, we can cover that mm-hmm. like the DNC is, but also like I have these that show it's much much bigger than just these mm-hmm. handful of things that have kind of popped into the public spotlight, right. and. I kind of got them to agree, you know, the the lead anchor, and he was like, "Look, I think we should go with that," right. you know. And it, it, most of it was something you couldn't do, you couldn't do in one day. Yeah. But we could, at the very least, talk about the FBI investigation because that's something that's right out there. It just takes a few sources to cover, right. uh, just to to confirm, and that's it. Um, but then, you know, as we're ready to go out, you know, about an hour later, it's like three thirty, four o'clock. I worked my night shift was two thirty, eleven thirty, 
Um, that was kind of the normal night shift. And all of a sudden, we're just not doing that story anymore. And the producer for the 11 show, who was, uh, is, maybe was, a pretty good friend of mine, and she was like, yeah, the reporter, and this, this reporter who uh, is very, very right-wing, I will add, um, he was fired from a previous station for a racist post. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, again, so I, you know where he's going to stand on this issue, sure. and he was the guy who was working the 11 o'clock show with me. Yeah. And, and normally we work pretty well together. We get our thing done fine. Uh, but he comes up to her, and he's like, oh, I, you know, I, there's not going to be time to do this story. You know, you got to do something else. So no. all of a sudden it's 4 o'clock, we're heading out, and I learn we're just not doing that story. And I come into the news director's office, and I'm like, we just all agreed we were going to do that. What happened? Yeah. And he's like, oh, just send me the, the list of, of the complaints, all the documents. And, I, you know, I got them. You know, mm -hmm. I had to call this guy on the phone to get them, make sure that we got him. I sent the reporter, too. And it just didn't happen. Nobody ever talked about it yeah. again. Yeah. Even through the time where I was, you know, no longer working there, I never heard about it again. And this was only a couple of weeks before right. I, I was gone. So... So it's kind of a kind of a soft veto because the like the responsibility is dispersed uh, right. across a bunch of different roles. Like that's the secret. The editor, right. the anchor, like the like the editor wants to keep the anchor happy, so he's not going to push too hard. And the yeah, the like, producer, the producer who writes the show, they sure. organize where things go, and yeah. they kind of have a say in like what their feelings tell them should be in the show. Yeah. So I think that in an environment like that, like people when say like oh the media is biased and all those things, there there is truth to that, but it's not this apparatus that i think someone might view where it's just very it's in plain sight like all i don't know maybe tyranny is a strong word but like <laughs> but like like any kind of like bad or oppressive setup like that it's dispersed across various levels like everyone right. feels like it's they, structural yeah i mean they feel like they benefit from it yeah and it's a, and it's a, there's a level of fear there and i think that level of fear is also backed up by the low pay the instability the fact that, especially when it comes to reporters, they're not from this city. Right. So you're much more screwed if you lose your job yeah. than someone like me would have been where, fortunately, I can just fall back on my parents, which is what happened mm -hmm. uh, for the, for a short time. Right. So it's all interconnected in that way. I mean, there's plenty more examples. But that, was sure. to me, was the one where I was like, I truly had something that was like exclusive from yeah. somebody who worked really hard on this issue. And we just didn't do it. Mm. And I think there's times where that's not always the case. Um, one thing that w with media, a lot of things, especially local stations, one thing they've been doing is like representation, right? Which means they really put an emphasis on hiring reporters who are female, who are uh, minority of some kind, whether they're, they're Asian or black or Hispanic. And that's good. I mean, there is a, a net benefit to that, right? It's not the end all be all, obviously, because even then a lot of these people still come from middle upper class backgrounds, regardless of what ethnic background or gender they are but so there are times where like a good progressive story uh does kind of creep in just because someone has a different mindset you know they have a different lived experience that exposes them to that um, but what i've seen just from my time working is you know i'll be the reporter for example and i'll kind of want to like ask a certain series of questions that's very challenging to someone right like for example uh we were in uh gates because this company was doing this big job fair for this big call center they were opening. And everyone was making a big deal about it. The Gatestown supervisor was trying to make a big deal out of it. And I'm like, well, we're the news. So let's, instead of cheerleading this, let's be skeptical about what this is. This is a call center. And, you know, we knew ahead of time the jobs were going to be like at most $14 an hour. Call centers, even just recently in Rochester, I think from Verizon and other places, just closed entirely after just a couple of years of operating. So I asked the guy uh, when we're interviewing him, you know, after the reporter does her thing, and I'm just like, so w what would you say to people who are hesitant to come to this job fair and to work for you when, because call centers are kind of known for not paying people that much money, they're unstable. And I go, what would you say to a viewer who is maybe thinking about working for you and, and they're, and they're wary because of that history of it. And, you know, he kind of gave me an answer like, oh, you know, like, Kind of like a job's a job. Job's a job. Which right. is yeah. what I expected, but you have to ask the question. But yeah. the reporter was the one who gave me a lot of backlash for that, right? Like she's – not that she's like super ideological, but she gave me uh, a big problem about it. felt offended that I asked that kind of question. I don't know if it made her feel stupid or something or what. You mm -hmm. know, hopefully it didn't. 
But you know, that happens a lot where I've felt the need to kind of like, I always make sure the reporter is done. You know, I don't want to step on, on his or her toes with that because that is her job. Right. Um, but I always, a lot of times, have to chime in at the end because there's a lot of ideological, not ideological, but like these core questions that don't get asked. Yeah. I mean, we had a, a police chief also in Gates who went out of his way to criticize these local protests in the city saying how like, oh, if you don't like what the police are doing, then join the police, you know, fix it. You know, and I'm like, and then the reporter, <laughs> again, this is the same reporter too, did not follow up on that. Right. Because th- it is not required in the media sphere from what I've seen, from what I've worked with. Um, to ask the hardball questions. You're sp- well, it is in principle, right? Like their idea of it, but this not this political knowledge, this historical knowledge, um, again, part of it's if you're not local, but also part of it is just, it's just not emphasized as a priority. It's not when people say like, oh, the media, like we're questioning the status quo. It's really just when an individual <laughs> or maybe a company is just breaking the rules that already exist. And we don't ask, uh, by and large, we don't really ask like, well, why are these rules here? What do they do? You know, we, we don't ever follow up with something that happens. Um, I think one of the most glaring things is when there's like a corruption story, right? Local media is, they're good about covering that. It's, it's something that they've, at least from what I've seen, they've always done. Um, also, it gets to be, because in reality it is, it gets to be kind of like a both sides thing. Because mm-hmm. let's say locally you have, I remember uh, Sheldon Silver and then you had Dean Skelos, right? Both the opposite parties, both convicted of corruption. And we cover that extensively as we should. But then it doesn't get spun into something bigger yeah it's stories just like it's surf, just like surface phenomena right? these are like, bad individuals yeah. and right. this this you can put a face on it and yeah. a name on it and you can't the hel- like that the helpful information would be like what are the underlying incentives that are allow both allowing and driving people to behave in this way yeah like it's not it's not that like just by virtue of uh being a bad person you become a politician although it's i think often the case um it's it's the case that like once you're in office and you have access to a certain amount of power and also you need things from other people it's going to drive your behavior and like it would be really helpful if local news would not just point a finger and say look at this sort of spectacular case of malfeasance over here how interesting they would say okay this is really bad it seems to be somewhat systemic what's let's dive let's dive below the surface and see what's actually driving this behavior like where where are the wheels getting greased like where are the where are the moral hazards that are that exist inside these jobs which keep getting people to fall uh routinely into the trap of sort of like these corrupted uh relationships like i would love to have that story told but it never gets told it doesn't and one again is because of time and the pressures that come with it but also and something that really made clear to me from my you know climb to whatever position i had if you want to say it's a elevate like you know having a full-time job in media is hard to do and mm-hmm. i and it took a lot of uh, work a lot of free work to do that and there's a lot of things you have to put up with that if you are from a poor background if you don't have uh something to fall back on in the meantime while you're making part-time money or no money um you can't get into so that to me seemed like it really shrunk the, by a huge amount uh, the the kind of people that are able to get into that field and have that perspective. Yeah. Um, There's sort of a sorting, a sorting of like kind of uh, quote unquote middle class, like middle of the road right. people. Uh, just be all that just, I mean, there's a lot of compassionate people in media. And again, anything I'm saying, this is not to like, tra- they are extremely hardworking, yeah. um, great people. They were mostly 90 plus percent of them were very, very good to me. Um, but they're not from, by and large, they're not from a, a background or have a political knowledge or political education to really uh, t- kind of, what's the word, connect, I guess, yeah. is, is the best way to put it, with the lower classes of people, with the working class. And it bears out in a number of different issues. Yeah. And it really, especially when it comes to police issues and the people that kind of are crying out of the injustices of the police, you know, mm-hmm. there's oh, whenever there's a kind of like a conflict between two sides they always seem to veer slightly to the right right they there's the status quo is the tiebreaker well you mentioned before that um the stations would try to hire based on you know like gender or race and Mm -hmm. try to get some diversity for for on-air people yeah right um but you also said that most of them were upper middle class uh or at least middle yeah yeah, just normal suburban life yeah i guess 
what I'm getting at is that you're saying like these reporters are kind of just coming from a place of privilege and they weren't able to kind of see past that and connect those dots in the stories to um, challenge their own viewpoints and to challenge power. Yeah, because especially when your entire relationship with power has been one where it's not really hurting you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so if you've never experienced any kind of um, uh, mistreatment at the hands of the police, maybe you're doing this story about someone who was mistreated by the police and you're thinking, oh, well, it's just a one off because it's never happened to you. For instance, like the way that you would cover a riot. Or it's, hey, follow the rules. You know, that's the the way that you would cover a riot would be significantly different if you like understood how frequently uh, these sort of like kind of insane uh, uh, altercations with the cops actually happened or like shootings or all of those things like you would you would be driven to tell more of a historical kind of narrative about like the relationship of the community with the police, which led to this sort of boiling over of rage in a specific instance of a riot. But if you are, you know, kind of inured to that and you're just like, you're like, oh, cops are cops and people are people. And sometimes there's mistakes. Like you're not going to, you're not really going to tell a story there. You're just going to describe some phenomena and then right. you move on. Especially when you're starting and for your first couple markets that you work in, and by markets, I just mean cities, metro areas, um, you're not making much money. So you keep people uh, constantly moving. It's a constantly moving workforce. You keep them low paid and kind of on edge. You keep them, which makes you a little bit scared. So you're not going to take a whole lot of risk. You're just saying, I'm just going to finish this contract. And I'm going to go to greener pastures, <laughs> go to this nice warm city. It's a little bigger. Maybe a lot, of, a lot of people I met, they're just trying to go closer to home, if not their home entirely, if they're from a bigger city. Yeah. And that is really a part of how the working conditions of people in media and local news media are really so, so intertwined into what you end up seeing on air and why that's the case. Um, And just trying to get into the field in college, you can't get an internship without having something to show them. And how you do that is by doing a bunch of stuff for free to get an internship that you are working at for free. Yeah, sounds like a scam. Yeah, it, it kind of was. And it's something you absolutely, because one, just getting into college, poor person, virtually impossible, um, at least a university. And I had to you know do stuff for a radio show. I had to do stuff on my own, two different radio shows. I had to write freelance for a website and by not the kind of freelance that pays you stuff. The freelance that just like, is hey, free. Why do, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. putting stuff on our site, you know. And you know, I put like a cool picture up, and they had a site that had like cool graphics, so I showed it to somebody. It looks cool. And then you then you go and you to your unpaid internship. Generally, some of them are paid in big big cities, but those are even hard to get to. Require you to know somebody. Right. So I I wasn't able to have that. On my own school, actually, we had one in New York City that you could do, and weren't going to pay for your uh, room and board at all, any of your living expenses. So that right there, even though I'm someone who didn't grow up poor, even I was cut off from that huge opportunity because there's absolutely no way I could do that without knowing somebody, and I didn't know somebody. And I didn't have money to fall back on to kind of just pay for me in, in those three or four months. So all of that affects what you're able to do in that job. It affects what kind of message that the station sends and it's become this cycle uh from what i've seen and i and i do think my account of things is pretty accurate um it's probably a little bigger and bigger bigger cities because people get paid more Hmm. um but it doesn't change um the fact that you have a constantly moving constantly fearful workforce and again and i say fearful because you notice a lot of our punching out episodes, you're usually interviewing somebody who's not us, uh, who's done this job. I've Mm -hmm. tried to interview uh, two of my friends who are reporters, both female reporters, and neither of them wanted to do it. Are Uh, they both currently working in Rochester? One of them is. That's why I asked her last because I was like, okay. Yeah, there's no way she's going to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I get that. But the first one, she's, she used to, uh, and she was probably the reporter I enjoyed working with best. And she's in uh, Virginia now. And she just didn't want to do it. You just, on the off chance, mm. you know. Was and she explicit about this, that she didn't want to do it because she had feared pro- professional repercussions? I, I, I mean, yeah. She didn't say that word for word, but yeah. it's like, why else right. wouldn't she, you know? I mean, it, it would be, it, it was it's just not weird, but it's something that's like, wow, it really hits you. Like, this mm. is, people really have a muzzle on them. And I mean, it's, you're not going to, and it's, it's a very small field too. So that's the other thing. People just feel lucky to be there. Right. Um, but it's more of a rat race than uh, most jobs are. 
And I think you can see, I mean, that you can apply that to any job, but mm-hmm. I think newsrooms are relatively small, even at their height of employment, right? When you, it was as less automated as possible. Right. Um, they're still relatively small workplaces that don't employ a ton of people. And so you see so clearly like the salary and class structures, like you have like your low wage or even part-time super young people who are like 21 to 23. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the full-timers mid to late twenties who are still making like, you know, depending on your station at most 16 an hour. Oh, that's like, if you're a fortunate one. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's people at this one station that it's the number one station and I, they were telling me like, oh, dude, I'm only making like fourteen twenty, and I didn't even resp- yeah, respond yeah, yeah. with what I was making. Yeah, because this was at my most recent station, which was like my height of my top salary I've had, which mm-hmm. wasn't a whole lot more. But I was like, he's, you know, and this is a guy who's way more experienced than me. He's married. Yeah, you know, oh, and I was like, wow. Wait, let's so let's talk about compensation for a little bit. So like, yeah. um, so okay, you're pretty experienced at the end of your media career. Like, how what was your annual salary? Um, so it was. The last one I had, I think, was thirty-three and a half thousand. Okay. It was fifteen seventy-five at okay. most. What were the What were the benefits like? In terms um, of like vacation, insurance. Yeah, I had like. Well, the thing is, also the caveat with my most recent one is that I was in a union. Yeah. yeah so yeah. this place was the second largest media <laughs> local media company in America. Record profits. Uh, was only paying me thirteen dollars an hour. Okay. And this is as you know they would have these little conferences, give us food, and be like, "Oh, we're making record money." And then yeah, I would yeah. go a month later and my, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. into that my sounds familiar too. Right. My <laughs> my news director and my GM. Mm. And, you know, I don't blame them really because it's probably true. Like, look, we just can't pay you more. Like, we're just not allowed to. Right. You know, and I that's when I went to my most recent station. Yeah. And so let's compare the two. So mm-hmm. all right. So you made. Uh, you made how much? Twenty-seven thousand. Twenty-seven at yeah. the non-union place. At the union place, you made thirty-three, something like that. Yeah, thirty, at least thirty-three and a half. What, what kind of like sick day uh, provisions did you? It have? was the vacation days were much better, but the catch was that you had to do it a week at a time. Oh, okay. So I had like fifteen days just normal vacation, and then because I was like newer, younger. Um, I picked like second last, so you had to like pick your weeks, oh, which means right. like I got like, oh, you get March late March off if Ooh. you want, yeah. which I was like, okay, I guess that's when I'll visit my friend in Portland or whatever. It's fine. <laughs> and then you know, obviously Christmas week is taken, Thanksgiving, all that yeah. stuff, um, which is fine. There's not really another fair way to do that. I didn't have a problem with that. Right. Um, but there is like un- unlimited sick days, but they can request a doctor's note at any time. Sure. sure. That was the catch. Yeah, it's yeah. like you're on your honor, oh, but they okay. are paid. Yeah. So that was cool. Um, so the kind of, I don't know about the healthcare. I'm sure I never heard too many complaints about it. Right. Um, but Did you I ever was, have to use it? No, because I'm under 26. Okay. I still am. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. So I didn't, luckily didn't have to worry about that. Okay. Um, so the last one, but it was still, it's like, wow, I had it as good as I could have had it. And I was still like, yeah. not even 16 an hour, you yeah. know, and for someone who is, for an entity that relies on someone like me so much to get things on air on time and in good quality right. and where one little slip up embarrasses and ruins everybody for at least a short time. That's right. Um, that is not enough um, for a company that pulls in, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Because, uh, again, the one on my most recent station, the company wasn't as big. They were a private corporation owned by, like, this billionaire family or something. Mm. Um, but owned, still, owned locally by billionaires. No, they were okay. uh, based out. Of, they were based out of, like Minneapolis. Oh, okay. okay. Um, the thing is, I was there when they first were bought, um, and this was summer 2013. So I never really saw any of that stuff because that was just starting. You know, it was within a year. It was with like less than a year, six months or so. Um, but the reason I think the internship is worth really is mentioning multiple times, is because like that to me is like the greatest barrier mm-hmm. uh, for entry. Um, besides, because there are kids who they can afford to go to college, they're willing and able to do all the little extracurricular stuff that gives you experience and gets you noticed by an internship. But then, like, when you have to go back to or, or go back home to your internship or to some other city where you have to work another job and then you're not able to work that job that much yeah. because you have your internship and all the demands that that requires. And sometimes, I mean, at least at this internship, I had to put stuff like on the web. You know, this is content, content that they are, you know, take, do photography for them, mm-hmm. do stuff that they are technically making money off yeah, of. Yeah. And I don't see anything from that other than like this vague assurance that maybe someone will hire me. Right. And it's a kind of indentured servitude. I mean, it is like you are an internship is not just 
And, and I mean, which is good because I didn't want to just sit there and just like watch people. Right. I liked doing things and it was nice, but I was someone who didn't have to worry as much about the fact that I had to work 10 less hours yeah. at my other, at my part-time job that I've been working at. So but usually the way that like these things are framed is it's like you're being done a favor by being given yep. this job. But it's like, no, like you, you're being you, paid an experience. Yeah. Like this, the comp- the industry <laughs> itself is reproducing its workforce. Like that's an, an that should, in a just world, take some kind of an investment, yeah. right? Because, like, if you don't if you don't train these people, you give them internships or apprenticeships or whatever, like, you you literally will have nobody to hire. So it's like, it gets framed as, like, we're doing you this favor, you can work and get exposure and get experience and stuff like that, but it's like, no, like, this is crucial to the industry. I think it's more severe because, um, again, even, even at its height of employment, media was never something that was, like, easy to get into. Mm. It's always been small, and I think they always know that. They know that, hey, if you want to do this field, like, you don't have a whole lot of choices for where to go. You're not going to have, especially if you're young and new, Mm -hmm. there's automatically a whole list of cities that you're just not going to be able to get a job in because they're just too big of markets. There's, like, this these tiers of market size uh, depending on what you're trying to do. Now, luckily for me, you know, Rochester is both big enough to where you can kind of stay in it if you want and, like, make a living maybe a lower middle class living, or if you're lucky, you can make decent money, especially if you're on air, you're an anchor, but also small enough to where, you know, they're willing to take some newer people, mm-hmm. especially, you know, a couple of the stations that are a little bit cheaper, let's say, and they're willing to put up with less quality. Um, but to me, like, that's the thing immediately worth fixing. That's the most achievable thing is ending uh, unpaid internships. Yeah. And you're going to get a lot more different kinds of voices, a lot of different kinds of people, and also just pay these people more money. And we might get into this <laughs> we might get into this I think in the second half, but the the monopolistic structure of the industry itself like it leads to a lot of these issues, right? So like not having not having a uh, a large array of job opportunities as someone who wants to get into media, oh, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that one one media company owns like everything that's happening in any given local um, yeah. And that's that's a huge problem. It's getting worse too. Yeah. It's and not it's only getting, getting better worse, anybody. Right. Like, yeah. It's getting a lot worse. And so it's, it's it's throttling all of these opportunities to get into media. And not only does it have an effect on the actual structure of your workday or like the your your job opportunities on on the inside of that industry, but it also has a pretty severe effect on the product of it on the outside of the industries, which is something we're going to get to in the second half. Um, so we'll take a break in a sec, and we'll come back. Thanks. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective, and we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, and we're on Twitter, at punchingoutwayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. All right, welcome back to Punching Out. This is Ariel with Chris and Emily. And we uh, spent the last half hour talking a bit about what it what it's like to be inside uh, of a media company. Uh, Chris was relating his experience uh, being a, what would you call yourself, a news photographer? News uh, photographer, uh, video journalist, although that's kind of used more for reporters. Sort of a, a renaissance man of media. Yeah, I've done mm-hmm. social media too. I can <laughs> right. tweet some stuff out for you. I can do it all. You're very good mm-hmm. at that. I, I know that. Um, so Chris is talking about uh, what it sort of feels like to do that sort of a job. And we're focus, focusing on um, on the life of somebody who does that work. Uh, and we're going to sort of flip the telescope around, and, and we're going to think about the way that media is consumed by working-class people and the way that media corporations are structured uh, as so as to affect the product um, and affecting the product to affect the self-conception of, of workers uh, who are seeing their stories reflected back to them, sometimes through like a, kind of a warped lens. Right. Um, so... What are some ways that we think uh, that the product of news is is affected in this way? Well, I mean, one thing I can confirm just from my own experience is that it, when you're, you're automatically closing off such a significant amount of people from working in this field and from taking part in this discussion, really, because a, a lot of the way the day is structured around a day of work at a newsroom is it always starts off with basically just a table discussion of what we're going to do. And that comes from somewhere. Like the idea of what the priorities are comes from somewhere, not just profit motive, but also like what's important. Yeah, I would argue that a big chunk of that profit motive um, is where the money comes from, where 
where do these news stations get their money? Right. Um, advertisers right. and local cable businesses. companies and local businesses. Local businesses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a big problem. Yeah, and these aren't donations, right? Like, they're advertisers. Advertisers are not simply giving money. They no. are giving money so that their uh, their their business can be associated with uh, with a high profile media that um, doesn't reflect badly on them or doesn't undermine their interests. Yeah, I mean. The thing is tricky because it's like, how else is are we supposed to make money? Like, as a new, like, are you saying, like, are we saying, like, oh, there should outlets to all just be publicly owned? Yeah. I mean, well, yes, yeah. they should. Be. <laughs> they should all be <laughs> right. independent. But then, like, people are always like, oh, that's state-run media. Like, well, it doesn't have to be. I mean, well, it depends on how democratic your state is, right? Right. It We're the only be, country. Where, it shouldn't be a problem. Uh, yeah, state, something yeah. is state-run. It shouldn't be a problem if it's actually democratically, uh, like, sensitive to the the actual people's needs. And state-owned media exactly. is like normal in every country, yeah. just, even Canada. I mean, CBC sure. is a major news outlet there. Not that yeah. they're perfect or great but sure. like it doesn't have to be state better. owned though i mean uh most of the people who know me know that uh i get most of my news from an online source called the young turks um and they get their funding from their audience and i think that that type of system makes tyt accountable to their audience and that's a different structure mm-hmm. than all of our local channels that you know I, I don't watch them, so I don't have a lot of experience really um, to even talk about them that much. But I do know, like, seeing their um, logo at, you know, hockey games or they're they're connected with the community in a way that if something is seriously wrong, how are they going to be able to critique things if – their money is tied up in right. a co- like say you know the hockey stadium or whatever. Right. I, I, yeah. That's a bad example, but yeah, no, no, I get it. Um, no, it's um. Well, see, but the thing about TYT is that like it's that's the same model uh, as like some kind of socialized news service, right? The only way to become independent is to like have a large crowdsourcing organization. Like that's the only way to do it. Right, and um, unfortunately, I feel like there's a little bit of a threat towards that right now especially with the net neutrality oh, sure, um, sure. issue of last month I mean, that everybody's already forgotten about basically the 96 telecoms act is what made it possible for the current even before any net neutrality stuff happened made it possible for the current media environment to exist yeah so i mean you, you can get into it all you want about um like legislation that has kind of led this to happen right. but i will tell you is that to me, the kind of like a local news station is their presence in the community, whether it's like at a hockey game or all the like parades. You know, I've been in one myself on St. Patrick's Day, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, that the kind of like, oh, yeah, like we're a part of the fabric, right? And to me, that made it even more so like we should really be addressing our most severe problems. It's that much more crucial, right? Yeah, yeah. like if we're presenting ourselves as that, but you guys all- should be sort of a type of hero yes. for the community as opposed to just like eh, something like that you know. yeah or just someone who's just digging stuff up that nor- people don't normally want to talk about like right. that's our role yeah. but instead um because of just the current reality of how things are funded and how news media has been warped for for decades now yeah. is what happens in the discussions in these meetings that i would come into is that there's sometimes it's just about like how do we make a good tv show right not that that we're sensationalizing things necessarily or that we're just making stuff up or, or doing dumb stuff all the time, which, I mean, sometimes that happens. <laughs> but it was more so about, like, what we prioritize in the order. I remember one time there was a day where uh, the mayor the mayor had her state of the city address, um, and we were interviewing, also me and this reporter were interviewing Chris Collins about a budget, the budget bill, about how it was going to cut local funding mm. for cleaning up the lake and stuff like that by 90-something percent. And he was... I think he was in Rush or something, like somewhere nearby where we'd be able to talk to him. And luckily he was overruled, but we had an executive producer who was like, yeah, that's too much politics in one sh- right at the top of the show. <laughs> right. I'm like, and, and luckily like three other people chimed in with me. Let's to, go yeah. to a, you know, a pet store and, yeah. look, and tell people about the puppies that are up for adoption. That is, no, it was, I think there was literally a dog story of some kind. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, that's right. Dog stories are a big deal. Which, you know, dogs are great. Yeah. No, not dissing dogs, but. No, I love cats. Are better. And, uh, they <laughs> couldn't help yourself. Could you? They're much. No, they're much cleaner. Yeah, I would get a cat. Um, but they. Sorry. But this happens all the time, where the priority is more on like, how do we not like upset people? Like, no, like, 
whatever. If you can't change the fact that people don't want to talk about politics, that's not something a news station can change. But like, that's our job. Yeah. And yeah. the pressures of I'm not sure if it's overtly advertising or mm-hmm. what, but also the fact that the workers themselves have lived lives that are largely so depoliticized, and politics just seems like another topic, right? Um, right. Instead of the fabric of our reality and the thing that we should be most concerned with as a news outlet. Um, and that kind of bared itself out so many times. Fortunately, that time, uh, my viewpoint on it won out. Mm-hmm. Um, but this ha- there's, a, there's a number of other issues that seem to really tap the reactionary vein of how news outlets operate, particularly local news outlets. And one of them is minimum wage. Right. Um, right. We mentioned in the, like the first segment um, the number of things that they do cover well and why, at least my opinion of why they cover them well. But minimum wage is something that's um, very hard to put a face on. Yeah. You can't individualize it. You can't even really talk about it that much without necessarily like indicting all mm-hmm. basically small business owners. Not that they all pay. There's a lot of small businesses, including one I currently work for, that pays people pretty well. Um, but service sector type jobs, bars. And there's so there a story that kind of ticked off a lot of us in DSA. One of our uh, members uh, posted it to our I think, Facebook page. And it was this story from the number one outlet here. This pizza chain was closing shops kind of like on their periphery. So there's Rochester based, but they're closing shops out in Syracuse and some of the outer areas, about four, four places. Um, and the story starts off with immediately talking about minimum wage yeah. and how it's a burden on these businesses. And like, look, it's causing things to collapse. And other uh, people who are not involved with the chain in question no. were being were being interviewed and just sort of given open space to just make make whatever sort of politically motivated complaints they wanted to, and then it wasn't until like the last third of the story where they actually asked uh, a person from the chain in question right. why they did the closing, and he just said, "Yeah, people don't want that many pizzas." Yeah, like, that was his answer. We yeah, we kind of they overextended, yeah. and uh, also it's not that great of a chain to begin with. Let's be honest. Um, but they, that was it. There was no, and the thing is, in from what I've seen in these kinds of stories, a lot of times the businesses will go out of their way yeah, yeah. to point to labor costs. I'm actually surprised that, I'm surprised that they got I the was. answer they did from, it uh, makes me like them the a little bit more actually. <laughs> uh, the fact that they didn't immediately point to the low wage, right. uh, 19 year old college kid who works for them right. as the source of their suffering, yeah. which is so common, yeah. uh, as another, uh, I think another pizza chain owner did that. Who was not a different company? Not even involved, yeah. They also talked to this Wall Street hack who lives locally. <laughs> right. he, he owns like this local like uh, like trading service. Yeah, some, like, he, some capital fund. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, and he had a lot to say. The like, stations talked to him all the time. Why he, was nobody in a, a union? Yeah, uh, com- like commenting. Why was nobody asked? Nobody why were no workers union? asked? No, yeah. There, and again, it's not going to get expanded into this idea of. What is it like for these workers when these places yeah. close? What is it like even just working, even if it's profitable and, go, and going fine? Like, what is that like? Like, I had an idea when I was working that, of course, did not get any traction. Sure. Um, it was like, we do a series on, like, we do this, we did this series, I mean, my most recent station about, and they probably still do it, about, like, oh, restaurants that aren't doing health code right. Uh, I'm like, okay, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want people to that's die. That's important. Yeah, yeah, of course. But because the because it's a series and we have to like air it a certain amount of times, we ended up doing stuff about how like oh they're they got cited this place got cited because their food was not the right temperature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just scraping the bottom of the barrel. Yes, um, and and that I was like okay like we don't have to do this all the time. So my idea was like we want to do a series one that we won't run out of stuff for. Yeah. Let's do one about like. A day in the life of like a minimum wage worker, mm-hmm. right? Like someone who's working, and luckily our minimum wage is slowly increasing here. It's nowhere near where it needs to be, yeah. but it's still a poverty wage. And let's just talk to these people. Let's get in their heads and like, talk about their lives and why they think their lives are the way they I are. I think it's important to show who they are too, right. yeah. because right. everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people have this concept in their head of, oh, if you're making minimum wage, you are a teenager mm-hmm. at McDonald's or at a pizza place. Yeah. Um, but I think it would be really cool for the local news to profile a mother of four kids. Yeah. Or, who's oh, yeah. like 42 years old. And yeah. this is like, this is what she is going to do it for is, the rest of her life. Yeah. And again, I, I, I'm hoping I'm not overestimating how much people pay attention to local news. But I do think it would really matter if you started uh, telling stories like that. And the reason why those stories don't happen 
is not because of necessarily because of an overt uh, conspiracy by the advertisers yeah. or a right wing hierarchy, even though that's kind of there, but not explicitly. Um, it's because because of who the workers are at these stations and who makes the decisions and where they're from and how their lives are. Mm -hmm. um, they do not take poor people's concerns seriously. Right. Well, and those that, stories also aren't the sexy stories. I mean, the thing is, I think it is because I think it would be shocking for for a working class person. Like, I yeah, it would be it would be actually it would be nice for working class people to actually see themselves reflected in their media. Yeah, and they don't. We don't get that. We get we get the sort of matters, yeah. yeah. We get this sort of amorphous concept of a middle class, but like it doesn't it doesn't actually mean anything. It, it, it's it, it's just a way for the news to sort of point to people who aren't obviously rich oh, yeah. or homeless. Uh, and to try to tell stories about it, but without without having a clear definition of what it even means to be middle class, like you can't you can't properly tell a story. Which is like I think that sort of keys into the the minimum wage story because like uh, there there were there were no no people from the working classes uh, consulted. There were no, nobody was talked to. The people who were affected weren't described at all. Um, it was just business owners and a Wall, a Wall Street hack. Yeah. And if if the working class had a kind of presence in these sorts of stories. Then the outcome, the outcome of the product would be not only more informative, but it would be more interesting uh, to actual working class people. And I think the thing that makes them so, from what I've seen, so nervous internally about these stories, and they, everyone gets a little stiff, like, yeah. like they kind of everyone kind of clams up when it comes to these stories. Like all of a sudden, it's a little bit tense. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because people know, like their own workers are yeah. like subject to that. Right. Like a lot of us are people who are like really benefit from that, and you see who are people who are, you know, even if they are one way or the other, they're anchors or reporters who are pretty good about being unbiased. All of a sudden it's like, hmm. like, oh, this is no, we, it, obviously this kills business. Obviously <laughs> right, this right. is pretty bad. And yeah. that's, that's the perspective that we should air more than the other sure. idea of it. Like the obvious question in a story like this for about the minimum, minimum wage is like, why is it that the economy is structured in such, such a way that if you're paying people who do this work a living wage, that it would sink, it would, you know, it would putatively sink uh, these businesses. In a city that has more poverty, again, than right. any city area in, in America, right? right. And, and But with the suburbs doing so much better yeah. by comparison, not just by comparison, I mean, the Rochester suburbs just are... objectively better, yeah. Right, are some of the most uh, affluent and especially with education, with health, with, with all these things, um, it's a better place to live than almost anywhere in the country. Um, but then the inner city is one of extreme poverty. Um, I mean, you can cut the Rochester poverty rate in half, and it's still only on par with the next closest cities in yeah. poverty. Yeah. I mean, it's truly should be something that uh, they should be talking about all the time. Whenever whenever you talk about working class or working poor people, you get a kind of a caricature, right? Mm -hmm. Like so there was a, a fairly famous story in Rochester revolving around the uh, fast the fast food sellers of oh, a certain yeah. chicken product. Classic um, classic class, tale. Classic tale, right. And it's it's sort of the confluence of a lot of things. Uh, one of those things is how representation matters in uh, in local news. Uh, but also, like, um, how the poor and the working poor are, are represented and uh, how these stories get generated, even by people who would consider themselves to be sort of well-meaning well or compassionate. Um, so, Chris, Chris, do you want to tell, tell us about the, the chicken story? Yes. So, I mean, I think everyone in this area kind of knows because the story went viral nationally. It was, you know, people laughed at it on YouTube. So, anyways, this fried chicken place was closed. Yeah. And... Basically, and predominantly black people were coming out. They were irritated at this, right? Like they were just upset that like they, there was this deal going on, and they ran out of chicken. Well, this was the this is the edi the editorial version, right? So like yeah. the, the the story that we saw yeah. was just a, a line of black people, mm -hmm. and I, I would say being being portrayed in a way that was incredibly caricaturistic. Oh yeah, uh, like the the interviews that were selected, the footage, the 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 people themselves that were selected. It was. Uh, cringeworthily um, just racist like is I mean, it was like a skit yeah uh, it, it really if you anyone can look it up on YouTube it's still I think got millions of views yeah. it had to to go national yeah if the Daily Stormer had like a had like a the Daily Stormer did if, oh. no if, if no if the, if the Daily Stormer oh, okay. had like a had like a, its own <laughs> SNL uh, yeah they yeah. would have made this skit yes it was it was like this weird like Jim Crowish kind of caricature of it it was brutal but it was. 
I'm sure it was shot and presented by white people. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that in newsrooms, especially when we go to uh, when we go to shootings, when we go to stuff that's in the inner city mm-hmm. and in neighborhoods that are predominantly black or Hispanic, yeah. there is like this, it kind of like a similar way how like cops are, are criticized for having this viewpoint, like, oh, I'm, I'm going into the battlefield. Right, right, right. Like, oh, I'm going, you know, going let's, 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 let me get, let's let me get my at, tank. Right, yeah, let's, let's, let's look at these people and laugh at them. Yeah. Like, there is that mentality among a decent amount of media workers mm-hmm. um, because of who works in the field. If the person doing that story was uh, a woman of color, uh, I, I'm not even entirely sure that story would have gotten done. No. I mean, if the anchor, because I'll tell you, anchors are a big part of, yeah. of what gets included. And, yeah, I mean, there's no way I could see any uh, person of color actually, like, reading that script and seeing the sound bites that have been picked because yeah. that's all a conscious effort. And, again, these are stories that take, like, they spent a couple hours making them. Mm-hmm. Because that wasn't one that probably didn't take that long to shoot either. Presumably you review the foot, the, the finished product once it's done before you... Yes, it. you always have your reporter watch the story unless you're really in a crunch. With yeah. Again, with that story, that's not a story that seems like it would have been you know up to the deadline. Um, it was all in one location and mm-hmm. very easy to do. Yeah. So it's just... It's an oversight that only happens when you have a relatively homogenous workforce. Right. And a workforce that is... They're only able to allow a certain kinds of people in. Not that, again, not that it's mm-hmm. conscious, but just the way that it's structured yeah. um, with pay, with instability. If so I can just backtrack for one second, we yeah. were talking about um, the way that the media portrays um, the minimum wage struggle. And it reminded me of this tweet that I saw earlier today. The person's handle is at Cupcakes and Wrap. And she says, <laughs> every business owner going on the news to say that paying workers at least $14 an hour will dramatically affect their bottom line should be absolutely hum- humiliated and ashamed to admit that all this time their profits came from paying people a poverty wage. Yeah. And I think that's just a perfect way to say it. And a news, ma- a news media that's doing its job should should dig into those. Should ask that question. Yeah, it, like, it should, should actually just tease out the relationships between all the players involved and to, to say something informative. Why are you only profitable when you're paying someone seven twenty five an hour? That's right. I will, And I will tell you that like nobody, and, I, and I'll say this on record recording, nobody is asking that question locally. Yeah. Absolutely nobody. Yeah. Anyone I've seen that I've worked with, and again, I'm talking about people who I love and admire and treat me well and I like them and they work really hard and they're great, mm-hmm. disclaimer, but nobody's asking that question. Yeah. Um, so part the, of it is because they don't think to ask it. They don't know to ask it. Yeah. Well, so it's the juxtaposition between these two kind of outrageous stories is, I think, sort of instructive, right? So, like on the one hand, there's the chicken story. That's a story. That's a story in which the the kind of gate kept representation of like people who actually work as anchors and editors and stuff in the news media. Like, if that is fixed, made more representational. Uh, that story wouldn't have happened. Like that's a, that's like a, a good, like a positive good that can come from making some tweaks in the way that the local news media organizations are structured. Mm-hmm. Um, so counterpose that to this this story, the minimum wage story. That's that that it's an example of much broader and much more intractable problems in the way that news media is structured. Because I don't think representation necessarily would have fixed that. No. Um, like not purely. Not purely ethnic or gender representation, no, which no. is what happens. No, it wouldn't have. It, yeah. it, it, that the the reason that the stories come out in that way is subject to a different series of problems. It's subject to much more widespread uh, structural issues with the way that like a, a commodified news media organization uh, is going to operate. Um, so I, I think they're actually kind of nice to put side by side because. Um, the, the bigger problem, the broader problem, is just the way, the, the fact that news media is not as viewed as a social good and is viewed as a commodity uh, and is subject to advertiser revenue, revenue or, in some cases, publicly traded companies, um, is subject to monopolistic practice, practices. Um, all of these things sort of combine to, to generate stories which are literally aimed against the working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when, the, when they're not erasing the working class uh, entirely, uh, they're they're aimed against the political and economic interests of the working class. It makes me wonder how do we get communities and workers and young people involved in media organizations mm-hmm. so that we can take that power back. They kind of have to start. They have to start new ones. I mean, I think 
That's that, that's one, yeah. especially for local stuff. It's a lot harder when you need when you need like a foreign bureau, right? Like you can't just start something that like can do foreign coverage or even national coverage. You send somebody to Washington, but there are there are and there always have been uh, plucky local n- news units. Uh, I mean, that there's Wayo one hundred four point three. This wonderful place where it's not necessarily <laughs> it's a news a organization, but it is a but it is a conduit for uh, for public interest programming. Right. Um, and I guess there's you know I don't want to get off on a tangent naming things but like uh that is one of the ways that you can sort of shore up a lot of the gaps in news media coverage locally is to start your own thing luckily the internet has sort of democratized this process uh, somewhat it's still you know for very now. difficult for now right <laughs> but but again like you know like the, even then yeah. i mean and the reason i think you need a multi-pronged approach is like what i tried to do was maybe not in, uh, infiltrate might be a strong word but really that's, that's kind of what i was trying to do um is go into the media establishment, right? The, yeah. ma- the main stations here in Rochester or wherever I needed to go and be a leftist voice, a socialist voice, or at least a progressive voice. Just have yeah. someone in the decision-making process mm-hmm. that is breaking away from that homogeny and away from the usual structure. I think that may be a little optimistic about the power of an individual agent. Right. But like, the thing is, as someone who's going to start their own outlet, like, what do you need in the meantime? Like, even if, yeah. like, let's say, even if the outlet like ends up being really successful, you get an office and you have employees, mm-hmm. and you're like, you're able to survive doing that with an independent outlet. In the meantime, you still got to like work this other job. You're yeah. still subject to yeah, it's not an easy thing. Yeah, by you're, any you're still means. subject to capital pressure. So <laughs> yeah. you need a little bit of both. And I think getting yeah, I like agree. progressive voices or, or leftist voices into media is difficult for a number of reasons and it's like i already mentioned about how hard it is getting to school and and just all the barriers to entry financially well i mean uh rochester's does have quite a good weekly uh which i won't name but it's yeah uh, it's quite good it's no it's a good start whatever they're doing they're doing it right right and they and what they do and i think kind of feeds into my philosophy of a this kind of multi-front approach Mm -hmm. is that a lot of times they'll cover a story that's pretty good and progressive. And once in a while, one of the bigger st- main stations will pick up pick on it that. Up it, yeah. They'll say they'll get exposed to it in a way where they wouldn't have if they didn't already exist. That's right. So That's right. they kind of play off each other a yeah. little bit. So news is always going to be bad, and uh, as long as it like it, it, there's capitalism, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, we bum, can do bum, our bum. we can do our best to try to carve out our own spaces to tell to tell stories accurately and and that are pitched not against the working class but are for the working class, but uh, fundamentally, like we're not gonna get, we're not gonna get a responsive and respectful and rigorous uh, news media uh, as long as there's still it's still a commodity. Yeah, there's a lot of people in it right now that are in it. You know, although they're they're well intentioned, they're in it because they like it. They they respect the institution as it is. Mm-hmm. So it it is, and I don't like to emphasize the individual, but. It is a matter of just people getting into the field that have a different mindset than that, that have a transformative mindset mm-hmm. about the media's role in their community and in their society, and also just pay these people more. Pay them more, yep. And they will stay, and they will gain institutional memory. Yep. They will get the access that you want to people. Yep. They'll, they'll, build, they'll build those networks. I want to reverse that suggestion, which is to say, if you work in media, get a union. Yes, because you're you're not gonna get you're not gonna. I get was these... in one and it was much better, even yeah. though it still wasn't good enough. Yeah, but, but yeah, get, if, even if even if the if it, if there is a union and it's not very good, get in it, and that is an organization that you can change as right. an individual. Don't be afraid of it because it's your right. Because ultimately, if you're if you make a union better, if you make it more responsible to its membership, it's going to be stronger rather than weaker. If you if you go into a, a corporation and you're trying to make it, you know, respond to to its workers and be more worker friendly, you're actually weakening it. Um, that's the difference between agentic change inside either a corporation or a union um but yes you're not going to get these concessions for free from your boss your boss is uh and not alone you won't either and certainly not alone they will trust me they you will, will, they will get rid of you for something yeah. <laughs> they'll they'll find something yeah, yeah they're very good at this so if if there is going to be change inside the inside the the news media industry it's going to happen from workers and it's going to happen from workers who are operating in concert and recognize that they share an interest and that interest is opposed to their bosses um, so I think that might be a good place to stop. Uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, send yeah. us your stories. Send we want to hear stories. them. Um, I think the bumper has all the contact information you're going to need. Uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks again. This is Ariel. Emily. And Chris. And this was Punching Out. Thanks a lot. Out. 
You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.